continuing in our study of Mark today. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them there, but we'll also have uh, the scriptures up on the screen for you guys um, as we go through. Uh, there are plenty of studies out there that demonstrate that the things that a, that a person values in life remain extremely constant. And in fact, a person's value system is well established by the time they turn 13 or 14 years old, which is kind of a scary thing in a way, you know, for those of us who are older, uh, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, And as the years go on, those values uh, and they, they become kind of like habits and they become really, really hard to break away from. The older you get, Uh, the more difficult those values are to replace. And if I were to ask you, those of you who are are old like me, um, if if I were to ask you guys to name uh, your top five values, I can almost guarantee that at least three of them, maybe four, possibly all five of them, were well established by the time you graduated high school. Uh, And they were definitely um, by the time you turned 25, at at least three. Um, from 1967 until 1997, you know the number one value played out on television shows that were geared toward uh, preteens and teenagers was? It, just anybody, throw out a guess. Christina, you know, so don't, th- don't throw out a guess. What was the number one value portrayed on television shows that were geared toward teenagers between 1967 and 1997? Community. Community and a sense of belonging to a group. I mean, if you think about it, Cheers, Little House on the Prairie, uh, Family Ties, I Love Lucy, MASH, uh, The Andy Griffith Show. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. All of these shows were focused on a group of people that stayed together, that, that went through hard times, and, and they were there for each other through thick and thin, no matter what. Any problem could be resolved within half an hour, right? That's, that's why the episodes were half an hour, because that's all the time that it took to resolve a problem, right? And those that couldn't be resolved within half an hour, well, they, they just had a sequel episode the next week. Um, well, in, in 2011, a group of UCLA researchers uh, started looking at the trends that are, that are changing, and what they documented was a, a stunning shift in the values that are being portrayed on television shows that are popular with adolescents. Uh, from 1997 to 2007, remember, up until 1997, the number one value was community. But from 1997 until 2007, the number one value for shows geared toward teenagers was popularity and fame. Fame, uh, of all things, fame and community had dropped to 11th place. Feeling like you belong to a group, that, that had become the 11th uh, most common value uh, portrayed on these TV shows. Up until 1997, the second most popular value for these TV shows was benevolence, being kind to others and helping them. But by 2007, it had dropped to 13th place. 13th place. And if you take the time to watch any of these shows, shows like Hannah Montana or iCarly, or Jonas Brothers, you know, the message is is kind of subtle, but it is there. The message is that if you're not famous, you're as insignificant as an extra on a TV set. Kind of scary. One of the researchers said, quote, I was shocked, especially by the dramatic changes in the last 10 years. I thought fame would be important, but did not expect this drastic an increase or such a dramatic decrease in other values such as community feeling. If you believe that television reflects the culture as I do, 
then American culture has changed drastically. And here's the thing, you know, it's, it's one thing to deal with an individual who's a narcissist, you know, just on an individual level, but it's quite another when the entire culture uh, begins embracing narcissistic behavior. And it's a tragic day when fame trumps community as the single greatest value in the minds of our children. And when community isn't even in the top 10, not even in the top 10, our nation and our culture are probably in much deeper trouble than any of us even realizes at this point. But of course, this is nothing new under the sun. Narcissism, narcissistic tendencies, that's nothing new under the sun. Narcissism and and selfish ambition are things that have plagued humanity since the Garden of Eden, since the fall. It wasn't how God created us to be. It's not how he desires for us to be, but it is part of our fallen nature. And in fact, I'd say it was possibly, you know, it had a lot to do with why we have a fallen nature. And so even though it's there, the call, if we're going to follow Jesus, is to strive against it because selfish ambition and denying ourselves, which, as we've seen, is a requirement for following Jesus. Selfish ambition and denying ourselves are polar opposites. They have no overlap. There's, there's nothing that those two things have in common. And as such, Jesus has made it very, very clear for us over the last chapter or so that there's no room for narcissism in the kingdom of God. But I will say this, Jesus knew uh, when he called his disciples, when he, when he decided to become like one of us, he knew that there would be issues like pride and narcissism and self-promotion and things like that because he knew that he was calling imperfect people to follow him. And he still does today. So he knows that these issues are going to be there. And I would argue that real, bona fide, genuine faith starts at the point where we realize that we don't have our act together, that our lives are messy, that we are imperfect, and, man, that we've got a long way to go toward perfection. And that's a beautiful place to be. That's a beautiful place for a person to find themselves, but it's a place that somebody who's stuck with these narcissistic tendencies won't find unless that narcissism is somehow broken. And that might be impossible with men. I'd say it's extremely difficult with men. But as we saw last week, uh, when Jesus was talking about how difficult it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom, what we saw last week is that God can reach the people who are the most difficult to reach. If nobody else can humble them, God can. If nobody else can get through to them and break them down, God can do those things. Now, in our passage today, the disciples and Jesus are continuing on their way to Jerusalem. They're on the road to Jerusalem. And I don't think that the disciples have any clue whatsoever uh, that they're in for what's probably going to be the craziest week of their lives up until this point. Now, Jesus is fully aware of what's going to happen when they get there. And, um, you know, while he has now told the disciples of what's going to happen on uh, at least two separate occasions, twice in the book of Mark, but, you know, he may have uh, told them other times that just didn't get recorded. Uh, While he's told them at least twice what's going to happen, we're going to see today that they are completely oblivious. Two times, at least, they've heard it, and it's like it, it hasn't even phased them. And so we pick it up with Jesus and the disciples and some other followers uh, going toward the city of Jericho. So we start in uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, 
And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself here. So our passage starts off with Jesus walking alone by himself ahead of the disciples. And behind the disciples, there are all these other followers. And by the way, Mark is the only one that adds this detail, that Jesus is walking alone, which strengthens the case for, uh, for this being Peter's testimony, really, through Mark. Because uh, somebody must have been there who saw this, who would have known this insignificant detail that, that Jesus is, is walking alone ahead of the group. So, uh, so this is as good as eyewitness testimony. And Mark tells us that the disciples are amazed, but he doesn't tell us why they're amazed. And uh, so we, we might ask the question, you know, why, why are they amazed? What would they be amazed at at this point? And it might seem likely that they would still be amazed at Jesus' teaching in, in the prior passage about how difficult it'll be for somebody who's wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. However, I would say that it's possible, if not likely, that they are amazed about something else. And you've got to look at the whole context of this passage to understand what that something else might be. And it's something that only Matthew shares with us. And that is that Jesus has just told his disciples that they will each sit on a throne and judge the nation of Israel. That's from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. If you want to put like a, a cross-reference in the, the margin of your Bible, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And the parallel of Mark's passage, uh, of our passage here today, is found in Matthew chapter 20. So it hasn't been long. Jesus has just told them, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the nation of Israel. And I actually think that is what they're amazed at right now. That's what's going through their minds right now. And part of the reason uh, for, that I think that, part of the reason that I, I'm pretty sure that this is what's uh, amazing them, is the fact that the people who are following are terrified. They're afraid. Maybe they ha- they've gotten word that the disciples get to judge the nation of Israel. And if you know anything about the twelve... Oh boy, that's a, that's a, that's a scary thing. Twelve of these guys, these twelve guys are going to judge me. I'd be scared. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be scared if they're going to judge anyone because uh, they're just such a bunch of misfits and they don't seem to have their heads on straight. And so this is the third time, the third time that Mark has told us that Jesus has warned his disciples about what's going to happen to them uh, or to him. And we should note that every time Jesus tells them uh, or has told them about it. He's added more and more details. He, he's filled in a lot of blanks, a lot of details uh, that were previously unknown. Now, it might seem like Jesus is getting some type of special revelation here or prophetic uh, revelation from the Holy Spirit here, but the details that he adds are all found in the Old Testament scriptures. This time he adds that they will mock him, uh, they'll spit on him and scourge him. And these details are prophesied of in Psalm chapter 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, we read, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And that's a, that's a prophecy of what Jesus would be saying on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced 
through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. So these are things that Jesus would have known because he's studied the scriptures. He knows them backwards and forwards. It's laid out so clearly that he doesn't need any type of special prophetic revelation from the Holy Spirit, although that certainly could be the point. That certainly could be the case. Oh, and one other detail that Jesus adds, by the way. This is all going to happen in Jerusalem, which is, by the way, voila, right where they're going, right where they're headed. The disciples are thinking that they're headed there to take their thrones, and Jesus makes sure that, or wants to make sure, that they're aware of the fact that the cross waits for him. And so Jesus, you know, he, he always ends these, these discussions where he's going to tell them, you know, about what's going to happen. He always ends these discussions by saying, I will rise again on the third day. He always says, I will raise from the grave three days later. So glory does await, but it has to go through the cross. Now, if you look at the, the first two times that Jesus told them about the things that were going to happen to him, do you remember what happened? He freaked, they freaked out. He told them, and they're like, no, that can't happen. And that was, you know, that was when Jesus and Peter had that confrontation, you know, where Peter says, I'm not going to let that happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you've got your mind on the things of men, not the things of God. You know, that, that was right after Jesus had told them. They were panic-stricken. And that's kind of strange because, you know, Jesus did assure them that his death wasn't going to be final, but it's as though assurance, the assurance of the resurrection had fallen on deaf ears. Now, it's interesting, in light of the way that they've reacted in the past, it's really interesting to see how they react this time. So let's look at the next verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's their reaction to Jesus telling them, I'm going to die. Okay, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we tell you to do. And I have to admit, you know, I, I kind of cringe inside uh, every time I read this. And that's just personal conviction. You know, looking at myself, wow, do I ever pray like that? You know, Jesus, we, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And when I read this, I'm, I'm just reminded that, you know, I have to be really careful not to assume the same type of attitude, treating God like he's a vending machine. You know, uh, I, I insert my prayer, and I make my selection, and I wait for it to happen like, that's, like it's just supposed to happen like clockwork, something like an engineer would design. But yeah, that's not the way God works. You know, one of my favorite um, comic strips of all times was Calvin and Hobbes. You guys remember Calvin and Hobbes? Those were great comics, and it's, it's a shame that that came to an end. Uh, but there's one um, episode or one comic strip in which uh, Calvin's outside, and it's in the late fall, um, and he's outside yelling at the sky to start snowing. And so he starts off, you know, give me, just give me a foot. Give me one foot of snow. Uh, okay, I'll settle for eight inches. Just eight inches. Okay, maybe, maybe six inches. You give me six inches and I'll be happy. Fine. One inch, one inch will do for now. And exasperated, you know, he, he's... he's reached the end of his rope, and finally he screams at the sky, do you want me to be an atheist? <laughs> and you know, that, that's great stuff. That, that's funny stuff. But at the same time, uh, you know, there are a lot of people whose prayer life reflects that type of, of attitude, which is funny when it's in a comic strip, and it's, you know, he's supposed to be like a, a five- or six-year-old little boy. You know, it's funny there, but it, it's, it's scary. Uh, it's a dark and dangerous place for a real person um, to be. Now, you know, we, we, we're the type 
our mentality is, is so easily, it so easily becomes that, you know, we always want the golden egg. We want everything to be peachy. Uh, you know, our, our thinking is that, you know, it's, it's perfectly within God's ability to produce good circumstances or, or happiness or riches or whatever it might be. It's within his ability to do so if he's God. And so if he's God, why doesn't he do it? If he can, and he can, then he should. So easily, that, that's what our mentality becomes. And so James and John, they're basically asking Jesus for the same thing. We're, we're asking for you to lay us a golden egg. We're asking for you to do whatever you want us to do. Give us a blank check and do what our hearts, whatever our hearts could possibly want. And Jesus, you know, I, I don't know how, what he must have been thinking at this point because he's just told them that he's going to die. But, you know, they're, they're basically saying, Jesus, you just sign the check at the bottom. We'll fill in the rest. Jesus, we want to be a couple of puppeteers and we want you at the end of our strings. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been expecting a harsh rebuke here. I really would have been, because this seems like such, for lack of better terms, such an idiotic thing for these guys to be asking at this point. But that's not how Jesus reacts. He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, we read in verses 36 to 40. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or are you baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So, wow, no harsh rebuke. Nothing, nothing like that. I mean, Jesus tells them about how he's going to be killed, and two of his closest friends, two of the three disciples who were closest to him, Peter's the other one, um, it respond by making this seemingly self-promoting request, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them. You know what that tells me? That tells me that no matter what, I can bring anything to Jesus in prayer. And he's not going to, to criticize me for coming to him. He's not going to rebuke me for coming to him. It doesn't mean that he's going to fulfill what my request is. But he's, he's going to, to listen to me anyway. He's going to hear me out anyway. He wants me to come to him with whatever it is I might want. Again, that doesn't mean that he's actually going to, uh, to fulfill it. But he'll hear me out. And it's amazing that Jesus shows this much patience and compassion with these guys in light of what he's just told them about what's coming up in the days ahead. And so he simply asks, what, what do you want me to do for you? As if he doesn't know, right? No, he, he knows. He knows what, what's going on. He sees ambition, unharnessed ambition in their hearts. Now, ambition isn't necessarily a bad thing. Ambition can be a very, very good thing, but we should be ambitious for godly things. We should be ambitious for the things that are in God's heart, not our own. And if we can harness it that way, it's a, it's a really good thing. And in this case, these guys are ambitious, very ambitious, to sit on these thrones in Jerusalem. And so what they're really asking is, we want to be by you when we judge. We want to be as close to you as we possibly can be. And so, see, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's kind of looking at it from a different perspective. But Jesus points out that they don't even realize 
what they're asking for. And so he asks them two things. The first thing he asks them is whether or not they can drink the cup that he drinks. Now, obviously, this is a figure of speech. So what does he mean when he asks if they can drink from the same cup that he drinks from if he's not asking them to drink from a literal cup? And he's not asking them to drink from a literal cup. The cup in this sense, uh, in, in a biblical sense, and you can find this in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, refers to one's experience in life, uh, the conditions that they find themselves in, the circumstances that they might find themselves in. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 6, we read, Upon the wicked, he, God, will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So the cup for the wicked, the circumstances for the wicked include God's judgment. And so the figure of speech here is that that's what their cup is. Uh, conversely, in Psalm chapter uh, 116, verse 13, <clears throat> we read, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Again, that's not a literal cup. It's the circumstances of the righteous, which include salvation. So a cup is a figure of speech for a situation or a condition that you find yourself in, usually not by your own choosing. But one way or another, it's what you're going to drink. It's what you're going to find yourself in, whether you like it or not. In this case, Jesus is referring to the cross. They, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about here, but Jesus knows. He, he's talking about the cross here. That's what he has in mind. He knows that it's coming, and of course, we know that once he gets into Jerusalem the night before the crucifixion, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, my father, if it's possible, let this cup, this circumstance, this condition, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's from Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. So what's, what's Jesus' cup here? What, what's he referring to when he asks if they can drink from his cup? It's the suffering. It's the persecution. It's the heartache, the fear, the, the public scorn, and the rejection. It's all those things. That's what Jesus is referring to when he asks, can you drink my cup? The second thing that he asks is whether or not they're able to be baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. Now, the Greek word for baptism indicates something is completely immersed or submerged, uh, surrounded by something, and Jesus is about to be completely immersed in conditions of suffering on the cross. And so Jesus is basically saying, his response is basically, hey guys, I'm not going to cut you a blank check. There are no blank checks here. There's a steep, hefty cost. Are you able to? to pay it. And look at the youthful ambition of these guys. Don't you, I mean, you really get a sense for how young these guys might be when they say, we're able. Like, no hesitation. Oh, yeah, we can do that. No problem, Jesus. We got it all under control. Yeah, youthful exuberance is, is a beautiful thing. <laughs> they immediately respond by thinking, yeah, we can, we can do whatever you do. And this is where Jesus switches gears. You know, he, he's just predicted his own death, but now he demonstrates that his foreknowledge, his, his understanding is eternal. That he, his, his foreknowledge isn't limited just to himself. It's limited to conditions that have maybe nothing to do with, with him as a person, but that lay far down the road. And he's predicting the death of these two disciples. He assures them that they will, oh yeah, they will drink from the same cup that he drinks. And they will go through the same type of baptism that he's going to go through. They're, they're going to die hard, suffering deaths. 
And, and what we find is that James is the first to be martyred. He's martyred in the book of Acts. He gets beheaded. He's the first of the disciples to die uh, from persecution. And John, of course, he'd be exiled to the island of Patmos, where he would die, also of persecution. And so what you find is that these guys are the first and the last disciples to be killed. All the other disciples, they get martyred in between these guys. These guys are kind of like the parentheses. And Jesus doesn't go into details exactly about what this means, but he already knows exactly what's going to happen to these guys. He knows what their fate is, even though this is years and years in the future. He doesn't go into details. Why? Why doesn't he say, you know, by the way, just so you guys know, if you keep following me, you're going to be martyred. Uh, James, your, your head's coming off. Why doesn't he tell them that stuff? It's because he doesn't want to destroy their ambition for the kingdom. These guys are full of ambition. Jesus just wants to harness it and redirect it for the kingdom. I think it's as simple as that. You know, these two guys didn't know, they didn't understand at all what they were asking Jesus for when they brought this request to him. And you know what? Sometimes I don't either. When I come to Jesus and I say, you know, Jesus, I'll go wherever you send me. He moves me 3,000 miles away. Wow, didn't see that one coming. (laughs) But, you know, God is sovereign and he's got a plan. And it's going to work out whether I'm with it or not. And my, my plan, my plan is just to say, God, wherever you take me, whether it's 3,000 miles away or wherever, I'm, I'm just going to go with it because I know that you've got a plan and I don't want to get in the way of your plan. But then Jesus dismisses their request uh, by telling them that the seats to his left and to his right aren't his to give away. Rather, he, he implies that these are positions that God the Father is in charge of assigning. Um, He says that that they have been prepared for someone else. Notice that God didn't prepare the people for those places. The places are prepared for those people. Of course, the people would be prepared. But God knew how, how they would be prepared, and he set the places in accordance with what he knew about how they would be prepared. And what Jesus is doing here is demonstrating perfect flawless submission to the Father. Perfect submission to the Father's will. He's modeling the type of attitude that we also need to have toward God, desiring His will, willing to go with whatever God wants, even if it's not what we want. When it's not what we want, we, we, of course, we, we want to go that way, but if the Lord makes it clear that it's going a different direction, we need to go with it. That's what it looks like to be submission, to be in submission to the Lord. And remember that this has all taken place. This whole conversation has taken place in front of the other disciples. So Mark is now going to turn our attention to how they react to this conversation. Verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, these guys are fuming, right? They're mad. Um, you know, the last time we saw this word indignant was back when the disciples tried to prevent the children from coming to Jesus. And Jesus was indignant. So you, you, you know how mad Jesus was there? That's how mad the disciples are now. That's how upset these guys are. Tempers are about to start flaring up. Why? Because James and John beat him to the punch. These guys all had the same thing in their hearts. They all wanted 
They're all ambitious. They all wanted to be close to Jesus or they wanted a position of prestige and honor in the kingdom. Now, before we uh, you know, think too poorly of them for feeling like this, we need to remember that it's just as easy for us to feel slighted or for us to feel upset when we don't get what we want. When, when we feel like there's something that we deserved and we don't get it or something that we wanted and we don't get it, it's, it's really easy for us to feel just the same way that they're feeling here, feel indignant. But Jesus is going to gently, really gently, correct their attitudes. Verses 42 to 45. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has, has done this type of thing before where you know, the, the disciples are kind of in a mess and he calls them into more or less a huddle. You know, things seem to be getting emotional. They're spiraling out of control and Jesus responds by calling them to himself, kind of like uh, the captain of a football team would call a huddle when the, the team is losing focus or, or losing direction and they just need to regroup and refocus uh, and so they huddle up. Uh, they need to regain focus, the, the disciples do. They need to regain focus and get their heads on straight. And so the first thing that Jesus tells them is that their actions, the, the way that they're acting, their, their attitudes are based on what's been modeled for them by the world. By the Gentiles. How does the world work? Well, someone who's in power has a friend who's not in power, and so he promotes that friend to a higher position than they deserve uh, as a favor to them, knowing that this creates something similar to a debt, uh, where the person who gets promoted into that position, despite not being qualified, owes the person numerous favors just for getting into that position. That, that's lording it over them, expecting favors in return for doing a favor. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's basically what James and John are at, were asking for here, and it's probably what the other disciples had intended to ask as well. By the way, that's how the American political system uh, tends to work way too frequently as well. It's all about who's scratching whose back. Well, the result in, in first century Israel is the same result that we have today. The person who's in charge, the person who, who's initially, you know, got the powerful position and brings other people up, um, you know, lords their power over them, over everyone. And Jesus is telling his disciples that that's the way they're all acting. You guys are acting like a bunch of Gentiles. And you've got to remember that for the first century Jew, that was a pretty big insult. But he's giving it gently. He's saying this is, this is how they do it. He's not saying you do, although that is implied. It is implied that that's exactly how they were acting. So it's a little bit of an insult. But the second thing that Jesus tells them is that this is not the way things are going to operate in the kingdom. The ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom are polar opposites, just like self-promotion and denial of self are polar opposites. The kingdom, and I'd include the church in that. The kingdom uh, should never be characterized by selfish 
narcissistic ambition. Nobody should feel superior to or more entitled than anyone else. That's just not the way it works. And I mean, that was the whole point of the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, right? I mean, that's what Paul's talking about uh, when he likens the church to a body with different parts. You know, he, he goes on to talk about how we're all gifted in different ways by the Holy Spirit in order that we can function together harmoniously, rather than, you know, one foot deciding it's going to head south and the other foot deciding that it's going to head north. I can't do the splits, but for those of you who can, maybe this doesn't apply so much to you, that's painful. That's painful. And, and when, when the church body, when part of it goes one way and part of it goes the other way, uh, that is very painful too. It creates a lot of hard feelings. Because we are who we are by God's design. We're gifted the way that we are by God's design. Not our own. Not our own. It's based on what the Holy Spirit sovereignly gifts us to do. We don't earn what we're gifted at. It's just given to us. And so because we don't earn it, because it's just given to us out of grace, there's no place for a sense of entitlement. There's no place for a sense of superiority. So the eye doesn't have the right to say to the hand, get lost, you're useless, I don't need you. Because the eye and the hand were designed to work together toward a common goal, which neither one of them determines, by the way. Kind of like today when I woke up and my brain is saying it's time to wake up and my body is saying it's time to go back to sleep. Well, something had to give, obviously, I'm here. So, uh, so that's the way that the church is meant to, to work too. Harmoniously working together. Submission to one another. So there's no place for envy in the kingdom because it's not based on personal favors and it's not based on our personal qualifications and talents that we had before we come to Jesus. It's based on God's, uh, God's grace and the sovereign gifting of the Holy Spirit and nothing else, and nothing else. And so Jesus is basically telling them, hey guys, in the kingdom, you can't function the same way that the world functions. Greatness in the kingdom isn't contingent upon how many people owe you a debt of favor. Greatness in the kingdom, he's saying, is established by serving. It's totally opposite the way that the world functions. The way that the world functions is, you know, you're great when you've got a lot of people and you're directing them a certain way and they're, they're carrying out your will. And Jesus is saying that's not the way that it works in the kingdom. Again, Jesus isn't rebuking these guys for their ambition. They're full of ambition. He's redirecting their ambition. He's saying, I want you to be ambitious, but be ambitious for the right things, for godly things. See, if you're ambitious for the right things, for godly things, what are you ambitious to do? You're ambitious to serve. You're ambitious to serve other people. Somehow, some way, in accordance with the gifting that the Holy Spirit gave you, God has designed you to serve Him by serving people. And the only thing, honestly, the only thing that prevents people from serving is sin. Sin will prevent people from serving. It's not a lack of opportunity. Really, it's not a lack of opportunity because there are always opportunities to serve. People love to be served. So there are always opportunities to serve to serve. And of course, you know, the ultimate model of service is Jesus. Nobody can, nobody can top his model of service. 
Why would the disciples want to serve others? They, they, they don't at this point, but why should they want to serve others? Because their master, their Lord, their Savior is the one who's setting the example for them. The one who created everything. The one who became like one of us, knowing that he would suffer, knowing that it would not be easy at all, knowing that there would be pain, knowing that there would be opposition by the enemy of God. You know, he had every excuse imaginable not to serve. Every excuse imaginable. And yet he he didn't make any excuses. He freely chose to serve the people he had created. And Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He freely chose to endure the suffering. He doesn't have to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's happening in Jerusalem. And yet there he is marching onward toward it, freely. He, he could have stayed on the outskirts. He could have stayed away. He could have gone into hiding. But he freely chose to surrender his own spirit. And he decided when it was paid in full, only after he had endured more suffering than we can possibly imagine. I mean, people got all upset about how gruesome the Passion of the Christ was. We don't like to imagine how gruesome his circumstances were. We don't like to imagine what his cup and his baptism looked like. And it may have been even worse than that. Talk about ambition. Man, Jesus was full of it from all eternity. Ambition to serve and to save. Ambition. And I want to challenge you today to be ambitious for only one thing. To know Jesus and to make him known. In other words, be a disciple who produces disciples. Use your gifts. Use the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave you for the purpose that he gave them to you. To fulfill that ambition of knowing Jesus and making him known. That's why you've been gifted to do the things that you are uniquely gifted to do. And you know what? God will always bless godly ambition. Often in ways that we wouldn't have guessed or even imagined. You know, ambition is great, but only when it's directed properly. When it's not directed properly, we've got to find a way to harness it for Jesus. Correct it. And use that ambition to drive the way that we serve others. We serve God by serving others. Be ambitious for that. You know, Jesus took the full wrath of God on our behalf. He died the death that we deserved. And with his blood, he he bought us. He owns us. And by doing that, he freed us from being slaves to sin. So there are no excuses because we're not slaves to sin. He died for me, so I'll live for him. That's the type of cry that our hearts should have, and that's the type of attitude that should drive us to serve others. He died for me, I'll live for him. That's what our ambition should be, and that is the type of ambition that God will bless. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your patience with us, with the disciples here in this passage, and we know, Lord, that you've been so patient and so gracious and so compassionate with us as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to harness our ambition and and direct it for the kingdom, Lord, that you would teach us to use the gifts that you've given us to serve you by serving others. We pray, Lord, for opportunities to do that. We pray for the right heart for doing that. And we pray, Lord, that you would be known through 
our words and through our lives for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.